And so we pick it up in verse 35 where we read this. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So this is that passage where the invitation, you know, to like, all right, there's, there's great needs. Pray that God would meet those needs and do this. And we'll see next week in chapter 10 that chapter 10 deals where he starts, he calls together the apostles, the 12 apostles, and he sends them out. So we become aware of this need in its context here, and then he moves to resolve that need as he sends out the 12 in the next chapter. So the back part of 9 actually sets up chapter 10 pretty well. But again, the back part of chapter 9 stands on its own. As I thought about Jesus and his ministry here, this is a, like you could almost miss this, but this is God walking on earth. We're told in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born under the law of God, to fulfill the law of God. Jesus came at the perfect time. Jesus always has been, always will be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you could read this passage going like, you might think like, oh, this is just like John Wesley in, you know, going through England in the 1700s as a circuit preacher. Oh, this is Charles Finney, Billy Sunday going through the South in the, in the 1920s. You, you could think of this ministry and go, oh, this is just someone doing ministry, but this is God. This is the Son of God. This is, no one's seen the Father, but the only begotten of the Father, the Son, he's declared him. As the 90 song said, it would if God were among us. And this is God among us, Emmanuel. And it's just amazing to me to think like, for all the great world leaders, profound world leaders, even before the time of Christ, Sennacherib, the Assyrian Empire, great empire, one of the greatest of all time. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire, again, one of the greatest empires. Alexander the Great. All these great human empires and here comes the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's an itinerant preacher teaching and preaching and healing in a radius of about 15 miles around a big lake. Isn't that profound when you really think about it? In a universe with trillions of galaxies and on a planet with billions of people, 8 billion right now, in a timeline of about 6,000 years of human history, it's at this time Around AD 30, as we understand it, the year of our Lord, AD 30, God is presenting himself, not just to his own people, he's a Jew, to the Jews, but for all people. It's just profound to me when you really think about it, how it's almost like Jesus being in the manger. It just seems so, if you're a Roman and you're Caesar, you're like, oh, who's this itinerant preacher, you know, by the Sea of Galilee, what's his name? Jesus, a lot, there's a lot of Jesuses in Israel. What's Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth. Like, it just, it just shows how we're told in Corinthians that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the things that seem weak are strong in the Lord. And the things that seem foolish to man is God's foolishness, which is greater than the wisdom of men. In other words, just thinking about this story and what Jesus was doing in the ministry, you could, also, you could just miss that this is God. This is how God ministers. Not from like, with all the flash of, you know, mega social media and all the 
the bells and whistles and the things, as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, what you catch them with, you got to keep them with. So Pastor Chuck made sure he caught him with the word of God, because then I can keep you with the word of God. I got to do a dog and pony show like some YouTube thing. I got to come up with new things every week to impress you and dazzle you and keep you coming back for more. This is just God who loves humanity calling humanity to himself. To the Jew first and to all nations. To me, just... And as I've been thinking about this, particularly again being at Sam Coca's father's memorial last Friday with hundreds and hundreds of people there, I thought, you know, if you break down your life, I break down my life, but it's really going to come down to about 100 people. Jesus had the three, Peter, John, and James. He had the 12, including Judas. He had the 70 that he sent out, and then he ministered to multitudes, and when ministering to multitudes, he administered to individuals from within the multitude. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God, the Messiah promised of the Old Testament. If you really think about it, he traveled in a distance between 40 miles in width and 80 miles in length, pretty much. God of a trillion galaxies, planet Earth, 33 years for this purpose, Savior of the world. So I think when we look at a text like this, we need to realize this is God's model for ministry. This is how God does ministry. Without fanfare, without a lot of pomp and glory, just he's just doing it. Jesus is just doing the ministry. The God of love, who so loved the world that he gave his son, is showing the world how much he loves them through his son, Jesus. And Jesus is bringing the Father to humanity. This is the model of ministry that Jesus showed the apostles, entrusted to the apostles, and has passed on through the church, to the church, through every generation, to us tonight, as we look at 2024 in a new year. It makes it so simple, but to me, it's so amazing because it's not world conquest. It's not bells and whistles. It's just truly what Jesus said, to be the grace in the kingdom is to be the servant of all and to esteem others and to become the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So as we think about this passage and what he's saying here, as he looks upon a multitude, as he teaches, preaches, and heals, that's the threefold ministry we have here in this text, as he goes from towns to villages, just a little circuit, so this is Jesus, the circuit preacher, son of God, teaching, preaching, healing, threefold ministry in that circuit. Later on, he'll reprove these cities for rejecting the witness he gave to them, so we know that Although he reached individuals, there there was no lasting monument to the ministry that he had with these cities. In fact, of course, Rome came and destroyed everything in the north between 66 and 70 AD under Titus, 12th legion, before he became Caesar. He was just doing it. And that's how ministry is. It has seasons. That's how it works. And all you have to do is look at church history to realize that's the the way it goes. And this is who we are now. Here we are moving toward 19 complete years of ministry here in this building, moving toward 24 complete years of ministry as an entity going back to Calvary Costa Mesa. And I think the simplicity of it all, this is it. Jesus looked upon the multitude. And this is is our topic tonight. 
this is that big idea that Jesus looked upon the multitude, whether it's a small village or a larger city there in the region, looking at people of all walks of life, he, he saw people. Very important we see people too. And you think, well, doesn't everybody see people? No, they don't. Hitler was a reasonable artist, if you didn't know that, Adolf Hitler, the Austrian before he became the German chancellor and, you know, full dictator. Hitler was an artist, and his paintings can be seen. And the most interesting thing about all of Hitler's paintings is it's only buildings, never people. Isn't that fascinating? Hitler only drew buildings and cities and towns, but they were empty. There was never any people. What a contrast to Jesus Because no matter how many people there were in a multitude, he would see the individual in that multitude. Not just people in general, but people individually. And the uniqueness of each person and their circumstances. And he'd even go outside of his lane of ministry to minister to people. For example, healing the centurion's servant by just speaking it. And healing Gentiles, although that wasn't the primary ministry. He told the apostles, don't go to the Gentiles. Stay focused on Israel. That's who we are now, and that's our priority. And yet he himself would break rank and minister to Gentiles because of his love for people and his compassion for people. He, he, in a sense, he prequilled what the church would do to all nations. He did it a couple times, just broke cadence, if you will, because of his love for humanity. It's about people. And Jesus sees the multitude, but really when he sees the multitude, we know as we go through Matthew and the other Gospels, he sees individuals. When we leave this planet and we step into eternity, what really is going to be the legacy of our life is a very small core group of people that we impacted and influenced. There's going to be your immediate family, extended family, And if you're part of the body of Christ and you're a follower of Jesus, there's going to be your church family, families, plural. Maybe the local church you're part of, whether it's large or small. Maybe you're a small group in a big church or you're part of a smaller church like us. The average church in America is under 100 people. Nine out of 10 church plants fail because it's not for the faint of heart. And so, like, when you step into eternity, whether you live 20 years, 40, 60, or 80, or 100, the, the radius is going to be a, a really intimate relationships with people you really impacted in time for eternity. And Jesus had three, 12, 70, and a multitude. And what do we see in the book of Acts? The three, Peter, John, and James, as the lead runners in the first 12 chapters. And the apostles being mentioned plurally, but those three being mentioned individually. And one of them loses his life for his testimony of Christ. It really is about others. And in this text, we see that as Jesus looked upon people and he sees the multitude there in verse 36, he saw the multitude. You know, he he went about, he saw, and he spoke. That's what we see in these verses. But when he saw the multitude, we're told, first of all, that he was moved with compassion. When Jesus looked upon people, he was moved with compassion. The Jesus style that is Christ in us, the hope of glory, is to see people. And to see people and be moved with compassion when we look upon people. See, this is, this is something I've always had a problem with in the world, excuse me, in the church, is when people use Christianity or religion as a means to make people consumers. I'm very, I'm like Pastor Chuck. Pastor Chuck Smith used to get really mad if he felt like someone was trying to fleece the flock 
or saw the congregation as a means of to derive income from. And that's why Pastor Chuck, when bands would visit Calvary Costa Mesa, would make them set up tables down there at the bookstore, nowhere near the sanctuary. He didn't want anything even remotely close to money changers like the tables that Jesus overturned. And it's actually pretty amazing. He let us have merch tables on Thursday nights at Worship Generation in the courtyard because he understood the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. But I definitely understood that. And I can't tell you how many times people came to Calvary Costa Mesa when we are doing Worship Generation. And because there's a thousand young people there, they wanted us to promote their t-shirt. They, they, they had an agenda and they, they looked at the people and they didn't see people. They weren't moved with compassion and empathy for sheep because they were like sheep scattered and, and without clear direction or needing help or encouragement, they saw people as consumer-based and what to take from them. And so in 35 years of ministry, I've had to be very protective of what I let come in this pulpit. What I, you know, what I let take place. We all know what it's like the last few weeks of the year to get solicitation for money, even well-intended from different ministries. Brian Jameson said to me earlier this week, my former assistant pastor, he goes, I really love what that ministry does, but I don't like it all the way they raise their funds to do it. And I said, I feel the same way. When you haven't heard someone for like three or four years and they reach out to you using your number and leave a message, and then they DM you, and then it's about they want money, doesn't that make you suspicious? Like, why aren't you reaching out to me after four years and say, hi, how you doing? How's your family? What's it like taking care of your elderly father? How's your sister doing? She doing okay? She's still living clean? How's your grandkids? How's your wife? What's it like being 60? But it's solicitation. So we need to know and make very clear right now, Jesus never looked upon people like he needed to take something from them. He, God sold the world, he gave his son. He came to give. He gave people his time uh, their priority of preference in conversations. He gave them truth. He preached. He, t- he gave them deliverance. He raised them from the dead. And then ultimately, he gave us his life. Jesus is a giver. And he looked upon people for what he could do for them, not what he could take from them. That's really important for us as we go forward tonight. Even in the business world, for those of you in business and you serve, we all, we're all selling something. Zig Ziglar said it best. We're all selling something. In a sense, we all represent something. We're, all, we're selling ourselves when we're engaged. We're selling ourselves to get in this college. We're selling ourselves to get the new job or get the raise. We're all, we're all selling something. But what we really want to be doing is presenting Jesus in whatever we're doing. So if in a service, it's a service sector world, and we, our pay reflects the service we provide. And... If we can truly serve people and make great needs and provide a service they need, then the reciprocation for that is proper and contextual for our industry or our skill set or what we're doing. That's how it works. That's how you get a pay scale for what you're doing, whether you're moving up, moving across, or whatever. But in the real world of serving Jesus, even if we're making money from people by providing retail or wholesale products or whatever we might do, We need to realize, it's like Colossians says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that you'll get your reward from the Lord. So even when we're trying to provide a service, it's still because we're trying to provide a service. That's the beauty of capitalism. It's a competing marketplace. And the price point of your service, better provided at a better price, allows you the freedom to prosper with the favor of the Lord. A poor service forced upon people like communism 
dumbs down people and doesn't, doesn't stimulate the human creativity innovation that God gives us. So even when you're selling people stuff, if you're, selling, if you're serving Jesus Christ, you're still caring about that person, not what you can take from them, whether you're fixing their car, selling their car, doing their plumbing, or you're their contractor. You, you want to bless them. You want to make their world better. You want their add-on to be the best on-on ever. You want their car to run better than it ever ran before. You want them to love this product so much they're going to come back and want more. I learned back in the 80s through sales reps, people don't so much buy the brand, they buy the sales rep. Jesus looked upon people, not what he could take from them, but what he was going to give them. He gave them the kingdom. He showed them love. He gave them deliverance. He gave them truth. And he gave them, he gave us his life to humanity. And when we look at people, rather than seeing them as consumers or what we can take from them, even if that's part of our career, because we all got to work, we want, we want to, like, be... Jesus was moved with compassion, and it means deep empathy, like, literally, in your, in your gut. Now, I can give you ideas. Interesting to me is, like, more often than not, I think people are moved with great empathy for animals more than they are for people. For example, if we go to Humane Society and we see the dogs, if I see an old white boxer in there, I'm going to have to take him home. That's why I can't go there. We raised boxers for 25 years. Uh, my favorite dog of all time was Buster the White Boxer with his heart murmur. And I'm like, hey, buddy, come to our house and we'll, we'll, we'll be the happiest years, your final years. And I, I'd be moved with great empathy to see that white boxer in that kennel at, uh, over there at AAA there on, on uh, Newland down by the beach. I, oh, I hear them barking. I'm moved with empathy. I rescued a squirrel last year from being attacked by a crow on the dog path. And I felt such protection for that squirrel. Like, I really did. It was a newborn squirrel, and the crow was trying to grab it. And Jennifer and I rescued it, and it ran. I said, your home's over there. Go down, beachside, not PCH, this way. And just, the, the, uh, no one, this squirrel deserves his chance to live. And we, we, we're like that with animals. We're not as much like that with people. Because animals just do what they naturally do, but people are self-determined, and we're creating God's image, and we can rebel against God. So we can look very ugly in rebellion against God. And so it's easier to lack empathy and compassion for people because we're evil. And we do evil things. We're sociopaths and psychopaths and narcissistic people. And it's hard to have empathy for people who don't have empathy or sympathy for whatever reason. But just because they don't doesn't mean we can't. See, that's the key. That is the key and the moral of the story. Sympathy is the ability to relate to people in a hardship that you yourself have experienced. Anytime someone tells me they've lost a child, I immediately have sympathy, particularly a newborn, because we lost our first son, a newborn. So I immediately, I mean, I just, man, I, I know what that feels like and immediately have sympathy. My good friend Bob Yaling, who's had stage four cancer and is finishing my book for me, a great writer, wonderful writer, great writer. He sent me a copy of chapter 15 last night, which talks about my mother-in-law's cancer. And when he describes what the cancer was like and how a cancer patient thinks, he was saying things that only a cancer patient like him would know. And it brought great depth to my book in chapter 15 that previously was not there. The sympathy, see, talking about my mother-in-law having cancer, Bob Yelling knows what it's like to have considered terminal cancer. That's, that's sympathy. Empathy is you haven't experienced it, but you have compassion on it. That's empathy. All four of my children are healthy 
in their lives physically. All four of my children have respect, reverence, and are serving the Lord in one capacity or another. Though, as most parents would say, not quite the level I'd like to see it, but none of them are deadbeats, they're all productive, and they're fruitful. But that's not the case with adult children for a lot of people. I have great empathy for people of my age group who have kids that just haven't made it in life. And Don McClure once told me years ago, Pastor Don, he said to me, Joey, there's one in every family. The more kids there are, the more likely there's one of them. It's just that, that guy. I praise the Lord, none of my kids are that kid, but I have empathy on those who have kids like that kid. Brandon's in-law, his brother-in-law took his life this week at 29. I've ministered point ground zero with suicides. In fact, I referred Brandon to watch the memorial from Mike Harris here for James Trent two years ago in this sanctuary, almost two years ago to the day. I said, I I don't think anyone could do a memorial better on suicide than Mike Harris did that day in this sanctuary. So I can't, I don't know what it's like to lose a loved one that way, but I know what it's like to minister in those situations that way. So see, in this journey of life that's 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 years, we want to have sympathy from our life experiences toward people as people go through injustices, hardship, heartache, suffering, pain, uh, self-inflicted consequences for sin, jail, prison, lost loved ones, broken marriages. We want to have sympathy where we relate by experience, and we want to have empathy where we don't, because Jesus was moved with compassion. And we can summarize this first point best this way. Paul the Apostle, when going through an extremely hard time, said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the God of all comfort who comforts us in our distress, that we might comfort others in theirs. See, all things do work together for good to those who love God. And as we're going through Job right now, we're going to see him just wrestling with the issues of life through losing family, loved ones, wealth, everything, and how he handles it, even physical pain. Compassion is the word to describe the disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, love is too, and all these things, I know we're Christians by love, but, but compassion is the demonstration of love. That compassion that has sympathy from life experience and empathy from just caring about other people. So as we go forward in 2024, and if it's our last year, let's have it be a good look before we step into eternity. The one who dies loving with compassion and sympathy and empathy toward other people with no mouse in their heart, they get the trophy. That's the winner. That's the person who's ready to step into eternity. The one who's got a hard heart, lacks compassion, lacks empathy, is self-centered and unable to put others before themselves, that one is a loser. That person's a loser on the day of the Lord. And if that person is any of us in this room tonight, that's why you're still alive, so you won't be a loser when it's the day of the Lord, and you can still be a winner. And that you can grow and learn through life experiences to have humility and brokenness and to actually think of others. Even those, well, we saw it in the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> we, 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 lo- we love those who hate us and spitefully use us. We pray for them. We forgive them. It's a supernatural work. The second thing we see in this passage is opportunity. So he's moved with compassion, but then he says that the, the, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the, the labors are few. So there's a great need, 
there's great opportunity, but there's, there's not a lot of workers. He uses like the farmhand analogy, like, hey, the harvest is ready. We need more workers out there in the field right now to take advantage of it. But he's talking about spiritual things. He's talking about a spiritual harvest. He's talking about people being one to heaven through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. It's not a field of wheat and people working in the field. It's human souls in every generation that hundred people in our world and those on the outer parameter that come and go in and out of it. That's what he's talking about. That hundred people. The, the family that knows you best. Your church family. Church families. However they go through different seasons. Your co-workers. Those people you share a journey with for a season. It's like, it's such a, it's such a small group of people, Really? And it's opportunity. It's all about opportunity. Either we're going to glory or we're not. Either we're going to the kingdom of light or outer darkness. And to, to know Christ and be saved by Christ is to shine for Christ. Jesus said, uh, like a city on a hill, you don't hide the light under a basket, but you shine. And some of us are not that articulate. and Some of, some of us are very intimidated to share our faith or whatever. But like Charles Spurgeon said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. If you have a hard time with words, actions speak so loud, the words don't even matter. The actions are what matter most. And people know when you care, because you listen and you make time. And you, you become the servant of all. There's opportunity. There's no shortage of needs in the experience the human experience, because there's 8 billion people on the planet and everyone's got problems. As Sam said this morning to the men, it's a paradox that the God of love is hated by humanity. The world wants love and God is love and God so loved the world he gave his son, but Jesus said, no one the world hates you, they hated me first. How paradoxical. A world hating love, needing love, and God is love. And our job is to show the world God's love. You don't need to bog down on trying to explain all the issues of life. The servanthood in Jesus' name and love demonstrated and empathy, compassion, and sympathy, it's, it just, it's a universal language. It, it truly is. The, the love of God working in and through us in how we treat people and care for them and, and sincerely care about them is a universal language that transcends the languages that separate societies and people groups on earth. There's no shortages. There's no shortage of needs amongst people. That's why I say, like, I'm not, I, I used to say it a lot when I was younger, but I don't say it as much now when I'm older because I'm closer to it. But I used to say I don't fear getting old and being in an assisted living home or anything like that because there'll always be ministry because there'll still be people. There'll be people that take care of me. There'll be people next to me. And, and even if I'm in a TV room with nine other people and eight of them are sleeping which is what you see when you walk into that room, by the way. Truly, you know, Bonanza's on or something like that, and everyone's asleep except one person, or maybe they're all asleep. But if that's your day in 2048, you still have ministry. You still have a purpose. Maybe your purpose is alive because God wants to teach your adult children something through you as they help take care of you, or maybe they ignore you, but somehow he has a plan to bring them to himself through you being 95, not knowing what year it is and who you are. 
I used to think ministry at 95 would be like, hey, I can still preach in the, in the you know, memory care like Billy Graham would or something. Like, I don't think that way anymore. I just think my life is so special and so is yours and so precious that as long as I'm breathing, God has a plan for it. And don't underestimate what it is and how he's going to use it for the people around you. Whether you're doing something or just receiving something, your existence only happens once. And if you build your life with compassion and empathy and opportunity in serving others, when you get to that place, you'll still be who you are and you'll be the compound effect of who you are. So you may not know who you are or what day of the week it is, but what you are is what you are and what you've sown is what you're reaping. And if you were about others, you'll still be about others when you're in memory care. Because as you lose different elements of your life, your memory and who you are and functions of your brain and capacities, the more you are that, the more that's what you'll be with whatever is left there. If the cup of water is good and you lose 80% of it, the 20% that's there is still good. If the cup of water is muddy and you lose 80% of it, the 20% you got is still muddy. There's always opportunity, always opportunity to shine for Jesus, no matter what the circumstance. As long as you're breathing, and there's 8 billion people on this planet, and even if you are left alone on the planet all by yourself, you still now you're like Adam and you're right back to the Garden of Eden. It's you and God. So make it count. Ministry is people. It's not the buildings. It's not fundraising. It's not expanding things and great influence and dog and pony shows. Ministry is serving people. And by the way, all those people have served my dad because we had to move them this week. But I thanked them all, and some of them were crying when they were saying goodbye to my dad. We got priced out by thousands in one month. So it's okay. And the new beginning is even better. I, I truly believe it. Well, it's better because it's what the Lord has. But as people came by to say goodbye to my dad, I just thanked them because they love my dad. They serve my dad. They changed his pull-ups multiple times a day. Man, props to all those people. And props for those who take care of their own family members at home that do that. Because as I said, we start in diapers and we end in diapers if you go far enough down the road. It's a very sobering thought. And there's opportunity in ministry and all of that. Not a small surprise, a couple of the most impactful people taking care of my dad in the last eight years, both in Carlsbad and up here, were strong Christians and are strong Christians. But just so grateful for that. Now he's in a new season. I guess God's not doing my dad at 93, huh? That's just the way it is. But the more I spend time with my dad, the more I'm less afraid to be 93. Two years ago, I thought, I don't even want to see 90. I'm like, you know, it's not so bad. Because God has a plan with it. We only get one life. When it's done, it's done. It's opportunity until it's done. It's opportunity. If we treat people right, we treat people with compassion and empathy now in the prime of our youth or in in the middle of our journey or whatever it might be, That's who we're going to be at the end of the journey. The compound effect of caring and sharing and empathy and sympathy. It goes on and on and just multiplies. And and that's the real compound interest we want. It's opportunity. Because life is filled with hardships, 
Life is filled with injustices and suffering and pain and self-inflicted consequences. And Jesus told us to wash feet. He said, what you see me do, you're going to do now. He took the lowest job imaginable in society and washed the apostles' feet to show them that no job is too low. It's opportunity. So we need to slow things down a bit. We need to get on Hawaiian time or Florida in July time because 95 humidity will slow you down. I remember one time being in a hurry in Hawaii and someone said, like, why are you in a hurry? Where are you going to go? We're just going in circles. I was on a while. I was like, you're right. I'm just going to keep going in circles. I should just slow down and enjoy the Cam Highway and the pineapple fields. Why am I in a hurry? When you slow down, you become aware of people and you see people like Jesus. You see the multitude and you see the people and you, you see the opportunities for sympathy and empathy and caring and serving and loving. It's opportunity. Serving others is opportunity. And there's no shortage of opportunity. And if we're looking for opportunities and we're responding to opportunities, there'll just be more of them. My wife Jennifer said to me, I think it was yesterday, she goes, Hey, Gloria Moore wants to know if we're going to do the, receive the shoe boxes again this year in November for, you know, all the people. Like, well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> we're getting fruit from it. She's got the vision, you know, she's been, let's do it. And then later on, she's like, Oh, Keely Dean wants to know if we can do the, the bottles for, um, you know, the Horizon Pregnancy Center. I'm like, Sure. Don't we want to minister to women having babies in difficult circumstances? For sure. See, is what we've been doing. It's just a compound effect. We keep doing it. What do we have this year that we didn't have last year with Operation Christmas Child? More boxes. We packed more boxes this year than last year. We just keep, you know, just going bigger. It's opportunity. See, you faithful this opportunity, then God gives you another one. So it's compassion, opportunity, and then, of course, availability. Because he said, pray for the, uh, the harvest is plentiful and the labor is few. Therefore, okay, therefore. So there's a great opportunity, but there's not enough people. That's the therefore. So what are we going to do? We're going to pray. And we're going to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send people into the harvest. Here's what happens when we pray. Many of you know this. When you pray, you become less carnal and more spiritual. You should. Like you slow it down and you start thinking about the kingdom. Start thinking, because it's not like, oh, God, here's what I want you to do. It's like, okay, Lord, what's your will? See, so suddenly the kingdom, slow it down, clarity. And so we pray. We become more spiritual, if you will. And we become more spiritual, become more eternal. Now we refocus on what really matters, what doesn't matter, what's important, what's not important. And then in that, we get wisdom as to what we're praying about and maybe what we can be a part of. And then ultimately, it leads to action. That's the beauty about praying for needs and opportunities is as you pray for needs and opportunity, you find yourself suddenly the person who's fulfilling it. That's how we ended up with the bottles for coins for Horizon Pregnancy Center. That's how we ended up. I don't even know where we began, when we began to be the shoebox people. But we are really good at Franklin Graham's shoeboxes. We're, we're good at this. We're very efficient in this ministry. That classic Calvary Chapel ministries phrase, it's not our ability but our availability. That really, in 1987, I'm like, man, there's no way. I'm like the most, you know, black sheep, black bald Catholic ever born. There's no way anything good can come from my life. Because I, you know, I spent more time at confession. Like, I mean, I couldn't get done with confession before I was racking up more stuff to go back. That's why I literally touched the holy water twice on more than one occasion. It was for what I just did and what I'm probably going to do. 
And that's why when Brian Broderson asked me to be a pastor or intern pastor, I said, there's just no way because I fail at everything and I don't want to fail in ministry. And then the Lord spoke to me on November 1st, 1987, that I would fail in ministry. But, you know, failure is inevitable, but growth is optional. And the Lord really showed me it's not your ability, it's your availability. Which takes us back to Isaiah where there in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had all the visions of heaven. And the Lord said to Isaiah, whom shall I send? And what did Isaiah say? Send me, Lord. Here I am, Lord. Send me. And we're just reminded that in this text tonight. If we pray for the Lord of harvest to send out laborers in the harvest, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to wake up and look in the mirror and say, I think I'm the one. You are the one. When Jackie Yockey in 1989 said, Joy, we're praying for a Calvary Chapel in Virginia Beach. Would you pray with us? I got on the plane and flew home that day. The next morning in Vista, I prayed for the Calvary Chapel, or Calvary Chapel to be birthed in Virginia Beach. And the Lord said, you're the guy. And all those adventures that my wife and I had on the East Coast in Virginia and Vermont, they would have never happened had I not just simply prayed the prayer for a Calvary Chapel in Virginia Beach as a prayer request from Jackie Yockey, who worked for Pat Robertson at CBN at the time. When you pray, you make yourself available. And the more available you are, the more opportunities will come. The more open doors you go through, the more God will give you. And the availability of showing compassion, empathy, sympathy, and just, you know, compassion, opportunity, availability, it just, again, it's a compound thing. And as you make yourself available, more things happen. And sometimes it's a day, it's a moment, it's a season. It can be more than that. Pastor Carlos has been cleaning the sanctuary for well over 10 years now. He's from Guatemala. He's an immigrant. He's a wonderful man of God. He's been doing a church in Tijuana for years. He's, not, he's kind of delegated a bit to uh, the Mexican pastors down there. But I asked him the other day. I said, hey, who's cleaning? I said, hey, Carlos, do you still go down to Tijuana? He's like, oh, Pastor Joey, let me show you. I took gifts down for Christmas, and uh, I got to the church, and they told me about some families that had no gifts at all with kids for Christmas, and I went to their houses. You want to see the photos? I'm like, yeah, I do. He showed me the photo of a girl about six years old, which is, happens to be my granddaughter's age, Zippy. And she got the brand new, like, it was like a girl's, it was like a doll and everything, and, and she was glowing. And see, that's, that's the Jesus thing. You don't go down to Tijuana taking, you go down to Tijuana giving. You don't wake up on planet Earth in 2024 to take. You wake up to give. You follow me? It's, it's compassion. It's opportunity. And it's availability. And you're part of the story. You're part of the tapestry. You might be one soup of the paintbrush over here in the corner of the canvas, but that canvas is God's glory for all eternity. And that's really what it comes down to. One day, one moment. Carlos, there it is. A photo that's worth 10,000 words. And enough to bring tears to my eyes when I think about it. That's the purpose of our life. In our little orbit, in our little villages, in our little cities, teaching, preaching, healing, because that brings healing to a broken heart on that day for sure. That's our little orbit. That's our hundred people. And if we reach more than that, good for us. But that's our world. So I, people, and, and seeing the opportunity that God gives us every day. And it might be a season or a long time, but seeing the opportunity and then seizing the opportunity through availability and make it happen. It's going to be our memorial someday. And this is just a reminder for us to begin this year what really matters and how we want to live. Yes and amen.